Let's bow together. Lord, thank you so much that we can fellowship together and sing together, Father. It's just such an encouragement to gather as a body and lift up worship and praise to you, Lord. To hear other believers uh, just speaking to you and talking to you, Lord, it, it just does my heart so much good. And Father, we recognize and believe that your Holy Spirit is here tonight, that Jesus, you are present, and that you have an agenda, and we want to pay attention to that agenda. And we want to hear from you. And Father, we pray that where we are off base or off track in our hearts and our lives, you would correct the course. And where, Father, we are standing strong and firm, you would encourage us to stay right where we are. And in all these things, Lord, draw us close to you in this last uh, study in the Song of Songs, Father. May we not walk away from, from this time that we've spent in this song and uh, lose that passion. Lose that sense, Father, of your desire for us. May I not forget, Lord, how much you love me. Keep it in our memory, Father. And write your words on our hearts tonight. As we sing this one last time in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 reads, Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. The wife is the neck. No, I don't say that. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And this wouldn't be a problem but for two things. The, the very first verse I read to you, Ephesians 5.21, would solve the problem, which just says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Husbands, wives, wives, husbands, doesn't really matter. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are called to be subject one to another. If we did that, then the whole rest of the concern about, he's my head, what, would go away. But there's one other issue that I want to address here. Tonight we'll finish the Song of Songs. We'll read through the sixth canticle. It's not very long, but trust me, there's plenty here. But before we get there, I want to address the issue that I raised last week. I raised it briefly. In fact, kind of skimmed by it quickly. I want to come back to it and talk about it just for a moment. So keep your finger in the song and turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. You know what? I think it's not 2 Corinthians. It's 1 Corinthians, isn't it? Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you enjoyed 2 Corinthians chapter 7, please let me know after the teaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, long about verse 4. We read this last week, let me read it to you again. In fact, let's back up to, let's just back up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You want to do that? No. Verse 1 of chapter 7. Let's get the full context of what Paul's talking about. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. 
<laughs> I would like to know what question was asked of Paul. <laughs> what did they ask? Is it okay if I'm out late one night? You know, is that, would that be cool with God? I don't know. Yeah. But because of immoralities, Paul says, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. See, Paul recognizes something sometimes we forget. Immorality runs both ways. It's not just a male problem or a female problem. We all struggle with immorality. Verse 3, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. (laughs) And likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And verse 5, yes, he is talking about the marriage bed. Stop depriving one another. When I first found this verse, I was a young man, newly married, and I know Cheryl from somewhere in the house must have heard me going, Hallelujah! I got it! I got it! And I learned that night to never quote that to my wife again. Paul says in verse 6, I say this by way of, and listen gentlemen, I say this by way of concession, not of command. And yet, how many of us here and go, right? I got scripture, babe, right here. Scripture and Tylenol, so even if you have a headache. Tonight, before we get to the Song of Songs, now you realize the Song of Songs is about a marriage about a a love between a beloved and his darling one and how they fall in love together. And it's just this beautiful song. And and they end up married. They have a wedding night, which is even described in the song. It's beautiful. It's godly. It's holy. And that's the point. Paul's main concern in 1 Corinthians 7 is holiness. Not who gets what. It's holiness. And we need to be clear about this this passage in 1 Corinthians 7 and the marriage bed itself, together, they are not given as tools of control. They are not to be used as tools of abuse or authoritarianism or legalism. Brothers, they should never be used to force a wife's submission. That's an absolute wrong application of this verse and this passage. Sisters, they should likewise not be used to withhold a husband's pleasure. Well, I'm sorry, I'm praying. Mm. Right now. And will be for about a month, so back off, Howie. You know? Paul sees in this, <laughs> Paul sees a mutual <laughs> submission. Do I need to give you a chance just to breathe there? <laughs> it's all right. See, here's the deal. <laughs> Someone give her an inhaler. We, we laugh because we all deal with this stuff. Well, not all of us. Some, not yet. Some of the younger ones are going, what? Here's the deal. Paul is talking about mutual submission and pleasure one to another as a means of, please don't miss this, as a means of holiness. 
as a means of helping us deal with our desires in the proper context that we might be holy before God. Which is why he consecrates marriage as a holy act. Because in that, in that relationship, man to wife, husband to wife, man and woman in the marriage, it's holy. Outside, not. But within, it is holiness. And God has the intention of holy matrimony. So why are there so many battles in the bedroom? And why does the wife sometimes feel like her husband is just a selfish brute? Why does the husband feel like his wife is using sex as a weapon? Why does this go on back and forth? And the answer is very simple, my friends. The curse. It's the curse. Genesis 3.16 Adam and Eve fell. There was a curse that was given. And the curse upon Eve, part of it, a very significant part that affects your marriage even today, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Literally, what what that is expressing is, wives, ladies, your desire will be to have control, but your husband's going to be given control. Which is going to cause what? Contention and conflict and frustration that was not there for Adam and Eve before the fall. Before the fall, they walked together. Before the fall, she was his helper. Side by side, they walked in the garden. After the fall, suddenly now, contention. This was not God's game plan. It's a curse. And there's been conflict and contention ever since. But men and women in Christ, listen, there is great news. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, Paul says, All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. What do you mean, Paul? The curse is lifted in Christ. That curse which plagues mankind even to this day, when Christ is brought into the picture, the curse is lifted. Partially because when Christ is there, we have mutual submission. And we're no longer battling it out to see who's the boss, who's in control, who gets what. Jesus lifts the curse. The conflict is crushed. Well, that's all well and good. But Christian men and women contend, don't they? Yep. Every time we get outside of Christ. Every time we function in the flesh, flesh, yes, we do contend. When we function in the spirit, and, and I, Les talks about this, and I love the example. You got spirit, you got soul, and you have body. The soul's in the middle. The soul, the, the, the seat of your intellect and your reasoning and your wisdom, and it's right there in the middle. If you are living by the spirit, the soul's going to go with the spirit, and two is stronger than one. But if you're living to please the flesh, the flesh will overcome the soul, and two are greater than one. You see what I'm saying? So if we're living by the Spirit of God, if we're led by the Spirit of God, contention goes away. Fighting and, and, and difficulty in a marriage leaves when Jesus is brought in. But when we're ignoring Jesus for our own right or our own good, contention remains. In Christ, the curse is lifted. So the bottom line is if you're having struggle and issues in your marriage, the the love that you have for Jesus is the only true way to deal with the issues. Bring Him into everything. Husbands and wives, you're contending? Then do exactly what Paul said. Then you should stop and pray. Then you should cease for a season and spend that time in prayer together. It is marvelous how, how intimate prayer can be. 
how much it draws a man and a woman together if they will bow before the Lord on their knees together and begin to pray. There is, there is a reconnecting that happens in a marriage. Christ at the center of the heart, at the center of the marriage, takes the contention away. So that's the ideal. And that's what the Song of Songs truly is about. If you look at it, boiled down in a nutshell, Ephesians 5, 21 through 25 and 1 Corinthians chapter 7 are dealt with in the Song of Songs. It's the patience of a loving husband. It is the passion of a beautiful wife. And it is the person or the presence of Jesus Christ that makes all the difference. So to the song, I am my beloved's. I am my beloved's. And his desire is for me. Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse 10. Don't forget that verse. As the sixth canticle now begins, the chorus sings their final verse in the song. This is the last time we're going to hear them sing out, and they're going to ask now for the third time, Who is this? This is a question the chorus likes to ask. They call attention to the happy couple now coming back up to Jerusalem. Watch this, verse 5 of chapter 8. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Now we're going to sit here for just a minute. This is not the wedding procession that we saw back in chapter 3 where we describe that palantine where they went up in the traveling couch of Solomon. They went up from the wilderness, therefore up to Jerusalem in that marriage procession, that beautiful march on up to be married. This is not chapter 3. It's a new chapter. This is a second coming, if you will, to Jerusalem. And it follows the flow that we looked at on Sunday. If you go back to chapter 6, flip back a page and look at verse 12. She sings, before I was aware, or suddenly, or I was caught off guard, I was surprised. My soul set me over the chariots of my noble people. And the chorus immediately sings, come back, come back, O Shulamite. Come back, come back, that we may gaze at you. And Shulamith went to find her beloved in the garden. There she was. She met him. She's caught up by him in a chariot, taken away. And the chorus is left saying, no, no, come back. We want to see you again. And we talked about on Sunday how that is a picture of the rapture of the church. It speaks of it beautifully. We got into that in depth. And by the way, this next Sunday, we're going to look at that again. Not these verses, but I'm going to give you a number of reasons. My list is growing of why I personally believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. There are four views. We'll consider all four. Uh, the first three briefly. And then the fourth one, the correct one, we'll spend our time on and talk about You know, I kid about that when I say the correct one, but there is a reason I believe absolutely that the church will be caught up before the seven-year tribulation, returning with Christ at the end of the seven-year tribulation for a thousand years of ruling and reigning with Him on earth, Him out of Jerusalem on the throne, and then after that comes the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. I'll talk about why on Sunday. But we have this picture here of the, of the rapture of, of Shulamith, the picture of the church, and of course Solomon, the king, a picture of Jesus catching her up into that chariot, and off they go. But now at the end of the song, suddenly they're going up again. Who is this coming up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved? She returns to Jerusalem leaning on her beloved. And we'll do that. We will return with Jesus to Jerusalem And some of you have said, well, then I'm not going to go to Israel because I'm going to end up in Jerusalem eventually anyway, right? Yeah, but if he came tonight, you'd still have to wait seven years. 
Why not go now? You know, and then when you go back, you can be pointing things out to people. There's a great little coffee shop right down here you got to check out, you know. After a seven-year honeymoon, after the marriage feast of the Lamb, as chapter 6, verse 10 says, we will be as awesome as an army with banners. Or as Jude says in verse 14, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones. Or as Zechariah said, The Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with Him. The holy ones, the Hagias, the Kadosh in Hebrew, the saints of God. Back to Jerusalem. Up from the wilderness. Now you might say, well, Pastor Rick, that all sounds fine, but there's a problem. I get about going to Jerusalem, but up from the wilderness? I thought we came back from heaven. So your point breaks down. Well, interesting you should bring that up. Why does it say she's coming up from the wilderness? Because in our journey back to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem, we may may very well go by way of the wilderness first. What do you mean? Keep a finger in the songs and turn over. Write the next book, Isaiah 34. Isaiah 34. By the way, I'm not going to do Mark. We're going to do Isaiah next. So, I couldn't help it. (laughs) We'll get to Mark. Alright, so Isaiah 34, verse 1. Draw near, O nations, to hear and listen, O peoples. Let all the earth, let the earth and all it contains here, and the world and all that springs from it. For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations, and his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them, he has given them over to slaughter. When has that ever happened? It hasn't. It's never happened. It will. This is speaking of that time at the end of the tribulation when all nations, and and Isaiah is very specific here, all the nations and all the armies will have been taken down by the Lord. So their slain will be thrown out and their corpses will give off their stench and the mountains will be drenched with their blood. Verse 4, And all the host of heaven will wear away, talking about the stars, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. Verse 5, For my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom. Edom. Yeah. Upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is sated with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. This is immediately after all the nations have been taken out. And he's talking about Edom and Basra. Skip over from there to Isaiah chapter 63. Verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? 
I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger, and I trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. Raiment. There are two things happening, by the way, there in verse 3. I'll just tell you quickly. I think, my opinion, I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I think he's talking about his crucifixion. And then, I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. He's talking about the tribulation. Crucifixion and tribulation. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption has come. Gang, vengeance for the nations, redemption for Israel. Verse 5, I looked and there was no one to help. And I was astonished and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Wow. Who is this who treads the wine press alone and then treads on the people of the nations? None other than Jesus Christ. None other than our Lord. He treads the winepress of the great wrath of God, Revelation 14.19 tells us. And in Revelation 14.20, we're told the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Oh, Rick, you don't really think that, that it's going to be 200 miles of bridle-deep blood, do you? That's what the Bible says. Yeah, but it's got to be figurative. Why? Have any other prophecies been figurative in Scripture? No. And I think that whether it's bridal deep or it's splashed up onto the bridles because of the riding through all the blood, it will be a bloodbath there at Armageddon at the end of the tribulation. What happens, by the way, when a person treads on grapes? The juice, the red juice gets splattered all over their garments, right? Revelation 19.13, describing Jesus, says He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, the reason I'm telling you all this bloodiness is because, you know, Tom was saying before we started, okay, so one more teaching in Song of Songs is good because we need something masculine, you know. I'm getting a little (laughs) kind of tired of all this mean, you know. So let's talk blood. When Jesus returns, and here was the question I asked before we went through all this little this little sidetrack here. When we return with Jesus, the chorus singing at the end of the Song of Songs, who is this who goes up from the wilderness? So up to Jerusalem, but from the wilderness, I thought we came down from heaven. Listen, I believe when Jesus returns and us with Him, it looks like He comes back in three stages. Three stages back to earth. I talk about this more in depth in the Revelation study online, but quickly, stage one, he comes back first to Basra. Well, why would you say that? Because Isaiah 34 and Isaiah 63 say it. That's why. From the valley of Megiddo to Basra, by the way, is roughly 200 miles. Basra and Edom. And the blood will flow at Armageddon all the way from Basra to Megiddo. That whole area. And if you ever go to Israel and you see just the valley of Megiddo alone is breathtaking in its scope, in its size. 
But that valley runs all the way down and becomes what's called the Jezreel Valley, or it's the Valley of Decision. The Valley of Jehoshaphat has all those names. It runs down to Jerusalem, and there on the eastern side of Jerusalem, it becomes what's called the Kidron Valley. Still the same valley. It's just the Kidron is much more narrow. But if you walked up the Kidron and continued, it spreads out into that Valley of Megiddo. And all the way down there past Jerusalem, through Jerusalem, on down to southern Israel, it continues all the way to Edom and where we believe Basra was. 200 miles of blood and carnage. But Jesus comes back first to Basra. Stage 1. Stage 2. On into Megiddo. Stage 3. To the Mount of Olives. And when He finally then gets back to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sets foot there, Zechariah 14, verse 4 tells us, and the Mount of Olives splits right down the middle. Because it can't handle the weight of His holiness. Amazing. Now, I'm not making this up. This is just what we're reading in Scripture. We'll see a lot more of it in the book of Isaiah. And all this blood, you might say, Rick, is just ruining the romance. Well, understand this. If not for the blood, there would be no romance. If not for the blood, you can close the Song of Songs because it's a namby-pamby, nothing poem that we have no business wasting time in. It's the blood that brings the romance. Hebrews 9.22 tells us almost all things by the law are purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. No remission, no romance. You've got to have the blood. Revelation 14.20 tells us again, the winepress was trodden, and this is interesting, tells us specifically outside the city. Outside the city. And just outside the city of Jerusalem, the two most important events of all history have happened and will happen. The first one, the first one is the cross. Happened outside the city. The second one is the judgment of Armageddon, which happens outside the city. In both cases, blood is spilled because without shedding of blood, there is no remission. The blood of the beloved is our hope. The blood of the beloved is our romance. The blood of the beloved proves the passion of God for you and for me. And without the blood, there is no romance. Hebrews 13.11 says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people through His own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to Him, outside the camp, bearing His reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. And that is the place of our romance. And He guarantees it's coming. So, back to the song. From the wilderness up to Jerusalem. Do you see? We come back to the wilderness and then make our way to Jerusalem with Jesus. So, it still fits. Who is this? Coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved. Who is this? And the husband now responds to the chorus, in essence saying, this is someone I have known for a very long time time. Watch this. Beneath the apple tree, I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she was in labor and gave you birth. What husband awakens his wife to life? What husband was present at the birth of his wife? 
Jesus. Of course, Jesus. He's the only one who can fit that description. Now listen, the apple tree was symbolic in the Middle East, still is somewhat today, of of romance and love. And so the song continues to be sung romantically. But there is the power to breathe life that is running under the surface of this. Now, Now catch this, it's kind of subtle, but watch this. The apple tree, the word apple is tapuach in the Hebrew. Tapuach. The root is the word nafak. Now, I know it sounds different, but it's the root word for tapuach. I don't understand Hebrew, but it just, trust me, it is. So tapuach means apple. Nafak means to blow forcefully. It's the root word of apple, the apple tree here. To blow forcefully. Why are you telling us this, Rick? Well, the two most immediately significant times that that word, the root word for apple is used, that means to blow forcefully, are Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, breathed, nafak, to blow forcefully, and man became a living being. So God was there, present. We know Jesus was there because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that all things were created through Him and by Him and for Him. So Jesus there, breathing life into His beloved in the very beginning, just as He sings, there your mother was in labor with you, there she was in labor and gave you birth. Beneath the apple tree, I awakened you. I gave you life is what He's describing here. By the way, the other time that word is used is Ezekiel 37. When Ezekiel is standing out there looking at all the valley filled with dry bones and God says, watch this. And the Bible says, The Lord God said, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may come to life. And suddenly they're covered with flesh. So, the beloved is singing of the day when his darling one was born, indicating that her first breath came from his mouth. He breathed life into her. And the only person that that can truly be is the one who said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am Jesus Christ. What other beloved is there who was with God in the beginning? This is the beloved whose name is called, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, who is there with her, and he sings that I gave you life. And so she responds, verse 6, she sings back to him, put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as severe as Sheol. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Press me into your heart, she says, like a signet ring that I might be impressed upon you. Seal me, she says, with your everlasting love. And isn't that exactly what He does? He seals us with His love. 2 Corinthians one twenty one. He who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Ephesians 1.13 In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. We were sealed into the heart of God. 
Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, I'd always assumed that seal was on me, but I think maybe, maybe it's both. I've been sealed, but I have also been sealed on His heart. The seal impressed on His heart that when He looks at me, saved, blood-bought by Jesus, He recognizes the one who was sealed as with a signet ring on His own heart, pressed in to the Lord. Oftentimes when we talk about praying, we say, let's press in. Or we talk about pressing in. I like that picture. Maybe next time you'll remember this, like the signet ring, sealed upon the heart of God. And she sings this to her beloved, do this. And gang, if we have opened our hearts to the Lord Jesus, He has put us like a seal on His own heart. Shulamith is singing and she's saying, I am 100% yours. I am yours absolutely. And she no longer has any assumptions that she might lose Him. Because she's finally realized she is not strong enough to keep Him, but He is. He's strong enough to keep her. He is strong enough to maintain their love. He is the one. She can put 100% of her trust and faith in Him and not in herself. Let me repeat what I've said many, many times recently. That if you're looking for yourself, for security in your salvation, you'll never find it. But if you're looking to Him for security in your salvation, you will always have it because He is secure. Keep your eyes fixed on Him. You're not going to wonder if you're saved or not. Look at yourself. You will wonder every single day. But you are sealed with Him in a way that only His love can accomplish. By the way, verse 6 also is the only mention in the entire song of the name of the Lord, Yahweh. Where it says the Lord in verse 6 is Yahweh. The very flame of Yahweh. The flame of Yahweh. Our God is a consuming fire, we're told. Hebrews 12.29 Our God, a consuming fire. But why is it here? Out of the entire song, why suddenly does God put His little signature right there in that verse? I'll tell you why. Read the verse again. Put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is severe as Sheol. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. She is describing love, and God is love. And so His name is inscribed right here. Yahweh. John writes in 1 John 4.16, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. That's why his name's there. It belongs there. It's the description of love, and you can't truly describe love without saying the name of the Lord because he is love incarnate. Verse 7, he responds to her. And I love this because we get down to this last, this last canticle. The chorus opens up, and then it's beloved singing, and it's the darling singing, and then the beloved sings, and the darling sings, and the beloved singing. And they're having a conversation, and they're going back and forth for the first time in the song. Before, it's been soliloquies, one at a time. And now, suddenly, they're, they're talking. And it's precious, and it's intimate. And so he says, after she says, set me like a seal, he says, many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love... It would be utterly despised. In other words, there is nothing you can give to purchase this. There's nothing you can you can sell that, that is worth the value of this. It's, it's too big. God's love is not a purchasable thing other than by the blood of Jesus Christ who purchased it for us. 
I, I think of Jesus saying, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? What can you afford? What can you sell, buy, barter? What, how, how in the world do you think you can buy yourself a spot in heaven? Isn't it remarkable that people do that? That there are actually religious systems in which you can buy time? I mean, it's, it's, I mean, no, no offense, you know, to, to our Catholic friends, but you can purchase less time in purgatory. You can buy stints in and out of eternity. What? You got nothing. I, I, I remember years ago watching the Cosby show. I think I've shared this before, but it's just funny. His daughter Vanessa comes in and she says, Dad, can we do this? And he says, no, that's a little expensive. She goes, but Dad, we're rich. And he says, no, I'm rich. You have nothing. (laughs) Isn't that it? God is rich. We have nothing. We can't purchase it. If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. (laughs) Really? You think you can buy this? No. This is something the beloved says that I have given freely. I have given it to you. It's yours because I've offered it to you. Jesus gave His life in exchange for our love. That is the unquenchable love. Now, back when we began the song, we get to an interesting thing here. I mentioned the players included the darling bride or wife, the beloved, the husband, and the chorus. Those are the three kind of primary singers throughout. But there are some other minor characters in the song, as you may recall. There's the mother of the bride. She's mentioned a couple of times. There's the brothers, the mean brothers who forced her to work in the vineyard back in chapter 1. And there's a little sister. The bride has a sister. And Shulamith sings of her now to her beloved. She says in verse 8, We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? Originally, I I thought, is that the chorus singing? Because it's, we have a little sister. But you know, something more beautiful is going on here. Shulamith is walking with her husband. And she says, we have a little sister. Why? Because she's totally his. And as in a marriage, when I got married, Cheryl's sister became my little sister. That's how it works. So she's talking to him, and she's recognizing now after all that they've been through and the place that they are in their solid, beautiful marriage, she's saying, can I talk to you about my little sister? Our little sister? We have a little sister. She sings we because she is fully unified with him. They are one, and she's trusting him implicitly. She's seeking his counsel. What are we going to do about our little sister? She asks. Who is this little sister? Well, we know a couple of things right off the bat. (laughs) She has no breasts. Why? She's immature. The description is of a younger girl, a prepubescent, not yet of the age ready for marriage little girl. So understand, that's that's why it says that. It's it's, it's saying this is a youngster, elementary kid. You know, we have this, this little sister. Who is she? Why here? Why suddenly is is this mentioned? we get two verses dealing with this little sister here at the very end in the midst of this romance. Why? Who is she? Some have suggested that it portrays the Gentile church. That the Jewish church, first 10, 15, 20 years there in Jerusalem, the Jewish church was Shulamit. 
the Gentile church who came along after that and began to be you know, drawn in and part of this whole thing is the little sister. There are some immediate problems with that, however. Paul, I think, does away with it when he said, as we read earlier, Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, you all are one in Christ Jesus. So there's no such thing. Once you give your life to Jesus, you know, we have Messianic Jews. They're Christians. Now, they're called Messianic Jews because they keep their Jewish heritage. And I, that's great. I don't fault them for it. I think that's wonderful. They like to keep the holy days and the holidays. And they, and they like to, to do the different things. But they believe in Jesus. Yeshua HaMashiach as their Lord. And so, Messianic Jews. But in reality, biblically speaking, they're Christians. They're part of the church. When the rapture happens, they go. Jews and Gentiles are no longer Jews and Gentiles. In the church used to be in the world, there were Jews and Gentiles as the basic breakdown of people in the world before God. Now, there are Jews and Gentiles and Christians. And if you've given your life to the Lord, you're just a Christian. Just a Christian, as if that's a just. You are marvelously, wonderfully a Christian. And so I don't think that this can be dividing the church between the older sister, the Jewish church, and the younger sister, the Gentile church. I've seen that. It's interesting. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think what we're seeing here is a great statement of hope. Now, if you're just reading the romance of it, you get kind of one flavor. Let's go right to the prophetic of it and the picture here that I think we're seeing. The little sister is either either those who are in Christ but young in their faith, not quite matured in their faith, or those who do not yet know Jesus as their true love but will. You're saying it's either or. Well, actually, I think it's both. I think the little sister describes those who all ultimately will be in Christ, but either those who are new in Christ and immature in their faith, or those who are not yet in Christ but absolutely will be. Now, how do you get that? Let me explain. Listen to the beloved's response. She says, what are we going to do about our little sister on the day when she is spoken for? And he replies, verse 9, if she's a wall... We will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she's a door, we will barricade her with planks of cedar. What? If she's a wall. In other words, she's strong. She's steady. She has kept negative influence out. She is grounded on the sound and solid foundation. She's already standing on the foundation. If the little sister is a wall... Built on the foundation, as Paul said, no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.11 If she's a wall, this little sister, maybe too young to fully realize the depth of the love that Jesus has, but she's spoken for, and she knows it, and so she's a wall. And he said if that's what we're talking about, if that's where she's at spiritual maturity-wise, she's in Christ. Okay? But... Not super mature just yet. He says, then we will build a battlement of silver on her. Or the word also speaks of a turret. A turret of silver. She's a wall, we're going to build a turret of silver on her. What does he mean? If she's immature in her faith, but she has a faith, then what does she need to hear? The Bible speaks of silver as redemption. Right? 
Silver is the picture of redemption in the Bible. I'll give you one example. Numbers 18, verse 15. Which says, Every first issue of the womb of all flesh, whether man or animal, which they offer to the Lord, shall be yours. He's talking to the Levites. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall surely redeem. And the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. As to their redemption price, from a month old you shall redeem them by your valuation five shekels in silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 giras. What's that all about? God demanded, commanded in Israel that He would get the firstborn of everything. The first fruits. The firstborn of every animal in a household would belong to the Lord. If they were clean animals, that is useful for sacrifice, they were sacrificed. If they were unclean animals, not for sacrifice, then the owner of that unclean animal, rather than sacrificing or killing it to give it to the Lord, would then pay the five shekels of silver to redeem it. And they did that with the firstborn of the household as well. See, so God is not into infant or child sacrifice, so He said, when you have a firstborn son, you go to the, to the priest and you pay your five shekels of silver to redeem your son. Silver throughout Scripture, and there's so many examples of this, when you see silver, think redemption, because silver is a picture of redemption throughout Scripture. So what are you saying with all this? If someone's in Christ, they're a wall, they know they're spoken for by Him, but maybe they're not totally sure of the foundation on which they stand. They need to be built up in redemption. They need to be taught about redemption. That redemption is not something that goes part of the way, or three-fourths of the way, or almost all the way. Redemption is completely for you. They need to learn, and I needed to learn this as an immature follower of Jesus. I needed to be taught to the point where I understood I had nothing to do with my redemption. There's nothing I could do to purchase it. Nothing I could do to, to secure it. She needs to be built up in redemption. If she's a believer in Jesus already, but unsure of her faith, build up in redemption. Does that make sense? Remember how long it took the bride to get built up in her redemption? Pretty much most of the song. We have watched this bride question again and again and again, does he really love me? Oh no, he's left me. Is he going to be there when I look for him? And he's always there. But she was unsure for a while. She needed to be reminded that her redemption in the beloved was absolutely secure. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. So, redemption is basic training for little sister if she's a wall, if she's already in the Lord. It's elementary, but it's critical before someone can move on to a mature love in Jesus. You're not going to get fully understand grace until you understand the price that was paid for grace. Redemption. You who are mature, like Shulamit, what do we do with this in the church? Because, you know, we have some little sisters. Don't we? In, in church fellowship? Here in the bridge. We have some little sisters. What do we do? They know Christ. They are saved. They believe in Him. But they waffle when it comes to, do I really know I'm saved? I keep looking at myself and I don't think I'm saved. And I keep saying, stop looking at yourself. <laughs> think about redemption. And when that clicks in, well, here's what we do. Paul says, Romans 14.1, accept the one who is weak in faith. But not for the purpose of passion judgment on his opinions. He says in Romans 15.1, We who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. 
So if our little sister is in the fellowship, she's a wall, she's already spoken for, she's standing on the foundation of Jesus, then she needs to hear the message of redemption until she buys it. Until she, like Shulamith at the end of the Song of Songs, can stand up and say, I am my beloved and his desire is for me. But that's if she's a wall. What if she's a door? Not dumb as a door, just a door. (laughs) If she is a door, we will barricade her with planks of cedar. Now, just speaking of this poetically, it's, it's kind of funny. He says if she's a wall, you know, if she's spoken for, if she's pure, if she's chaste, we're going to build her up. In fact, this whole picture of the turret of silver may speak of a silver headpiece that she could wear as a, a bridal ornament. You know, we'll build her up. But if she's a door, he's describing now, she swings back and forth. She's open to any suitor who wants to come in. She is not secure for marriage yet. She is not certain in her faith. She's open to just about anything. What does she need? He says, if your little sister, if our little sister's like that, we're going to barricade her. (laughs) She's not going out. She's going to stay in. But spiritually, gang, if she's swinging back and forth, we're talking about someone who doesn't yet know Christ, doesn't stand in the foundation. Someone who will, just be patient, be persistent. What do we do? What does she need? She needs cedar. Literally here, cedar wood. We will barricade her with planks of cedar or cedar wood. Gang, she needs the cross. And Paul said, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The message of the Gospel is the cross. This is what our non-believing friends need more than anything else. The cross. And he says, we're going to barricade her with planks of cedar. Tell them about the cross. And if they don't understand, tell them again. And if they still don't get it, tell them again. You bring them back to the cross time and time and time and time again. To the cross. Because the cross breaks a heart. The cross opens us up to the passion of God. Remember what we said a few minutes ago? The blood of the beloved. There is no romance without the blood. So you take him to the cross. If she's a door, if she's swinging back and forth, it must be spoken again and again. Verse 10, and now Shulamith listens to this. It's very wise counsel. It's Jesus-like counsel. He knows what he would say. And she responds, I was a wall. Yeah, I remember. I know what you're talking about. I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. And then I became in his eyes as one who finds peace. And don't misunderstand this. I know the picture kind of makes you go, oh, (laughs) I was a wall and whoa, you know. What is she talking about? I was mature, she says. I was standing on a firm foundation. I was certain of my faith like towers on a wall, which, by the way, are defensive. What is she saying? In essence, and and not to be crude, but she's saying, my breasts were not for the taking. For anyone. I was chaste. And I was pure. And I was virginal. Best thing about this woman in the song, all the way back to chapter 1, yeah, she was sunburned and, and weather cracked and dry and unkempt in the vineyard, but she was a virgin. I was a wall once. She remembers now back to when she was betrothed to the bridegroom. I was a wall. I stood on the foundation. I remember knowing that I was yours, and yet I also remember, like you say about little sister, (laughs) I was betrothed, but I was still a little unsure. And so I needed to be built up just like she did. 
And I love how she says, Then I became in his eyes as one who finds peace. She describes everything we've seen in the Song of Songs. She finally comes to peace. I finally settled in. I finally, now when he looks at me, now when you look at me, you see that I am at peace because I am completely yours. The wordplay here is intentional. She found peace, shalom, in the eyes of Solomon, shalomah. You know, it's the same with us. Solomon won her not by force, but by loving kindness. Just as our greater than Solomon, he won us not by force, but by grace. It's his grace that saves us. Isaiah 54 verse 10 says, For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. And where is our peace? In the eyes of Jesus. He is our peace. Ephesians 2.13, Now in Christ Jesus, you who are formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There's the blood of romance right there. For He Himself, He is our peace. Now, final verses of the song. Shulamith reflects one last time here. Verse 11, she's thinking back. She says, Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He entrusted the vineyard to caretakers. Each one was to bring a thousand shekels of silver for its fruit. She's recalling her original state back there in the vineyard as a vine dresser. She's thinking now of the tenant vine dresser's responsibility. And we see this actually in other places in Scripture. The responsibility of the tenant vine dresser, we see this from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 23. The responsibility is to earn a thousand shekels of silver, which is approximately 25 pounds of silver, which, according to Isaiah, is the equivalent of about a thousand vines. So for every vine that you grew, you could sell the grapes for a shekel. So a thousand vines, a thousand shekels of silver, a thousand shekels, speaking again of redemption. And that was rent that was paid to the landowner. Then, beyond that, typically another 200 shekels, beyond that became, and that would be like five pounds of silver, became wages for the tenant. She's remembering back. Okay, so I remember back when I was working the vineyard and and we paid Solomon. I didn't know it was you. We paid him a thousand shekels of silver and we kept five. That was our that was our payment here. Or we kept two hundred. That was then. This is now. As she sings of her own vineyard, verse twelve. My very own vineyard is at my own disposal. In other words, this vineyard here is mine to give as I see fit. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon. And two hundred are for those who take care of its fruit. What? <laughs> what is she talking about here? I think she's talking about specifically a dowry. The two hundred is a dowry. Even though her brothers were angry with her and forced her to work the vineyard, She's saying, in essence, you know, they still deserve some recompense for keeping me until my beloved came for me. They still should get a bridal dowry out of this. I point this out because if I'm correct in my understanding here, His grace is rubbing off on her. 
Back in the first chapter, she's angry with the brothers. They made me work out here. And now she says, you know, 200 shekels are for those who take care of the fruit. What fruit? The fruit of my vineyard. Those who protected me. Those who kept me. Those who were my covering until you came along. They deserve a dowry. You know, she could have brushed them off. A couple of jerks. Made me work out here. Uh Uh-uh, not going to give him anything. She doesn't do that. She could have left behind her country girl ways. We already know she doesn't do that. When she finally realizes his love for her, she takes him back to the country. She wants him to be with her where she was, where she is, and where she's going to be. Oh, there's a sermon in that, but I'm not going to give it right now. As Paul wrote, she understands something. He said in 1 Corinthians 15.10, By the grace of God, I am what I am. He says... His grace toward me did not prove vain. I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. In other words, and jot this down, it's good to remember, the more I get grace, the more I will give grace. The more I understand grace, the more grace there is in me to give to others. He rubs off on me. His grace makes me gracious. And Peter said in 1 Peter 4.10, as each one has received a special gift, employing it and serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. My vineyard's all yours. But can we give something in a dowry? By the way, can you say to Jesus honestly tonight, can you say, my vineyard is all yours. All that I am belongs to you. Every aspect of my life is yours, Lord. Is there anything in your life that is kept from Him? A business dealing? An attitude? A secret sin? Is there something in which you can say, you can have all the rest. I'll give you 999 shekels of silver, Lord. It's all yours. Can I just, I'm going to keep this one. And it's my own little human security. I'm going to keep this. Can you, like she, say... It's my vineyard. I've given it to you. And now it's yours. The last two verses are the final back and forth between husband and wife. And they sing prophetically. They sing of exactly where we are, where you are, where I am, where Jesus is right now. Listen to this verse 13. He sings, the beloved... Oh, you who sit in the gardens, my companions are listening for your voice. Let me hear it. Let me hear you sing, he says. Let me hear your voice. The beloved wants to hear the voice of his darling. As I said when we were praying earlier, Jesus loves to hear your voice. He loves to hear from you. And apparently his companions like to hear it as well. There's something to think about. When you're talking to Jesus, angels going, you hear that? That's the church. That's those saints that are praying. Wait, let's... Shh. Michael, be quiet. Listen. You know? He loves to hear my I hate to hear my voice. You know, occasionally people will call or they'll email and they'll say, hey, there's a problem with such and such teaching. You know, there's uh, something missing or whatever. So I have to go back and, and I hit play and it's like, I sound like that? But Jesus loves to hear my voice. So I just crank up the teaching and leave the room. <laughs> no. He loves to hear your voice. You know, we don't text our songs. 
We don't text our songs in silence. It is the voice of worship that He loves to hear. Hebrews 13.15 Through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that they give thanks to His name. And by the way, there's nowhere in Scripture that says if you have a good singing voice, sing out to the Lord. It says actually make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Open your lips and praise Him. He loves to hear your voice and it doesn't matter if it's in tune. I think in the intercessory work of the Holy Spirit, it gets in tune before it gets to the ears of the Father. Okay? We don't text our songs and we don't tweet our words. You know, shooting off little snippets of here's what's happening in my life now, Lord. There you go, Lord. No, He wants to hear the voice of prayer. He desires to hear it. John Corson at a recent conference that I was at said, I pray out loud because if I don't, my mind wanders off. I know that doesn't happen to any of you. You know, it doesn't happen to me when I pray silently. Isn't that frustrating? And you're in your head and you're praying, Dear Lord, I just thank you so much for. Ooh, look, a shiny speckle. <laughs> and so pray out loud. Because it will help you keep focused and He just loves to hear your voice. He loves to hear it. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Pray without ceasing. We talk about hearing His voice all the time, don't we? And yet He wants to hear yours. And right now, we're in a season with Jesus. And that's a season of union and communion, we walk with Him, we talk to Him, we share our lives with Him, but there is a separation. It's just the reality. We're with Him in the Spirit, but we're not immediately with Him. And we know that. And that will soon change. But that's why I believe, as He says, let me hear you. Let me hear your voice. Pray. Sing. Let me hear from you, my beloved. She turns around and she says, hurry my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. i got to tell you one more thing about this last verse. It's amazing. She sang a similar refrain before. Do you remember? She sang back in chapter 2, verse 17. She said, Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of Beter. But there's a profound yet slight difference now. When she sang that before, it was the mountains of Beter. Beter means separation. Remember? She's separate from him. No, no, no. I'm not ready yet. I love you, but turn, she says. On the mountains of separation. Now it's the mountains of spices. The Hebrew word is basam, not Beter. The mountains of basam, which means sweetness. She said, turn back in chapter 2, verse 17. The Hebrew word is sabab, which means turn away. Get, get, get away. Now it's hurry. Make haste. The Hebrew barak, make haste. Come quickly. And Jesus says in Revelation 22, verse 20, Yes, I am coming quickly. And I say with John, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Hurry up. Make haste. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the song. Thank You, Lord, for singing it over the last six weeks to us. Thank You, Lord, for our part in the song. Thank You for for calling us to be the loved one, the darling, the wife, the bride, Shulamit. Thank You, Lord, that You took the place of the beloved. 
Lord, that you, you put on flesh. You dwelt among us. Fathers, we're coming into the season of the year we hear that name that was spoken by the prophet and then by the angel so often. Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you for being God with us, the greater than Solomon Jesus. Thank you for pouring out your love and making it so absolutely clear. And may we always say, I am my beloved's and his desires for me. In Jesus' name, amen.